Welcome to the fourth episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill Stories. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is a historic and active cemetery in Balakinwood, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1869 across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. It's larger than Laurel Hill. It has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population. Now, like Laurel Hill, it is open 365 days a year, now from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. That's until April, when the hours again expand to 7 p.m. Plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or at the Bell Tower. If you enter on Belmont, follow the road with the white line in the middle. Another possibility is just to duck in while you're walking the Kinwood Trail. Your best bet for public transportation is probably to take a bus to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue and then cross the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge, come in by the Writer's Ferry entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. Our fourth episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is from mid-January 2022. I will tell you of a man who was a late starter in life, Theodore Presser, but he ended up making millions of dollars from publishing a magazine for music teachers around the world and by selling them sheet music. And then he gave away much of his money in his lifetime, and the endowments he left continue to aid music students across the country. Did you take piano lessons when you were growing up? If so, there's a pretty good chance that your sheet music came from a company called the Theodore Presser Company. Was your piano teacher an older woman? Well, if she was of certain age, it's almost certain she subscribed to a magazine called The Etude. It was published by Theodore Presser. There's also a good chance your piano teacher was a member of the Music Teacher National Association. Yeah, Theodore Presser founded that organization. Did you know before the days of retirement plans and Social Security, there was a home for retired music teachers in Mount Airy? It was called the Presser Home. Today, it is a retirement complex, and the building is on the National Registry of Historic Places. The man responsible for all this, Theodore Presser, was a hard-working, frugal, self-made man, originally from Pittsburgh, a son of German immigrant father who was a glue manufacturer, and a frail woman from Gettysburg who died when he was two years old. His father remarried when he was about eight years old, and Theodore's stepmother took over his care. But five years later, Theodore's father died and his stepmother remarried. So at age 13, Theodore moved in with his brother Edward, who is 12 years older and married with a daughter of his own. The teenage Theodore and his brother were both excellent guitar players, and they would accompany their friend Stephen Foster sometimes when he toured and previewed his new songs. When the Civil War started, Theodore attempted to enlist in the Union Army, but he was rejected. He took a job at a foundry that made cannonballs, but despite his enthusiasm, the heavy exertion and heat forced him to quit after just a few months. 
When his brother William returned from the war and established a saw factory, Theodore again tried his hand at heavy labor, which involved more lifting of hot metal and straightening bent saws with a hammer and anvil. He lasted about six months before again breaking down. He now knew that hard labor was not for him. While recovering, he took a temporary job in the music store of C.C. Mellor. His job was to handle ticket sales for Pittsburgh performances by the Strakosch Opera Company. Maurice Strakosch was a Czech immigrant who became a successful American opera impresario. I talked about him briefly in podcast number 12 of All Bones Considered, A Night at the Opera. Presser excelled at this job, and Miller hired him full-time as a clerk. So for several years, Presser learned firsthand about running a business, serving customers, and managing a music store. Eventually, he was promoted to manager of the sheet music department. He was so good at his job that one time a customer came into the store just after they'd extinguished the gas lights for the evening. The customer wanted a particular piece of music. Theodore said, yes, of course. In complete dark, he made his way to where the sheet music was and he brought it back to a very surprised customer. Now, when he was not working at Mellor's store, Presser took piano lessons at 25 cents each. Mellor rented the piano for him so he would have an instrument at home for practice. Presser was in his late teens, far beyond the age where things came naturally. He spent almost every spare hour practicing and attempting to master the keyboard. At age 21, he enrolled at Mount Union College in Alliance, Ohio to study music. And by his second year on campus, he was listed in the college catalog as both a student and an assistant professor of instrumental music. A recent graduate of Mount Union, Henry Solomon Lair, had started a normal school or a teacher's college in Ada, Ohio, and he hired Presser to teach music and French, although Presser had not yet achieved a degree. One of Lair's principal goals was to make education available to students of limited means, something that Presser never forgot. Over the next several years, Presser had many part-time positions at multiple schools and moved frequently from job to job, while taking occasional breaks for further training at the New England Conservatory and at Ibn Touget's Summer Institute in Rhode Island. While working at Ohio Wesleyan Female College in Delaware, Ohio in 1876, he became the primary organizer of a gathering of music teachers to bring together members of the music teaching profession into an organization which they call the Music Teachers National Association, the MTNA. There were 62 founding members, 18 of them were women. Although he was the primary organizer, Presser declined the presidency, but he did agree to serve as secretary. Within a dozen years, the organization boasted 1,649 members and an annual gala that was a major event in 19th century musical life. Today, the MTNA, which recognizes Theodore Presser as its founder, has 22,000 members in all 50 states and more than 500 local affiliates.
Prusser recognized that music teaching, especially in a small town, can be a solitary profession. Teachers usually work alone, often in areas where there were few, if any, other music teachers. Teaching standards were inconsistent, and unscrupulous teachers were common. Think Professor Harold Hill in Meredith Wilson's The Music Man. The goal of the MTNA was to promote mutual exchange of ideas, cultivate fraternal feelings, and broaden the culture of music. Presser learned the value of promoting. By working with local newspapers, he put together full-house audiences for concerts ranging from solo performances to full chorale presentations. The admission fee was usually 25 cents. In March 1877, at age 29, Presser published his first article in the College Transcript. It was called Literature and Music. Deciding he needed even more education, Theodore longed to study at the Leipzig Conservatory in Germany, which had been founded in 1843 by Felix Mendelssohn. Saving enough money on his teaching salary was impossible, but his beloved stepmother stepped in to inform him that his father had left her a small inheritance, which she had invested wisely, and she wanted to share. She handed him an envelope with $3,000 in it, and in October 1878, he boarded a ship for Germany. He was 30 years old, about twice the age of the average enrollee. Despite 10 years of prior lessons, he was not considered an advanced student. Presser loved his time in Leipzig, where he met Edvard Grieg and Johannes Brahms. He laid flowers at the graves of Mendelssohn and Schumann. His new mentor, Dr. Karl Reinecke, was impressed by Presser's sincerity and told him, I do not know whether you will become a musician or a businessman, but I do know for certain that you will become a teacher. One of his instructors wrote in his final assessment, distinguished himself from the beginning through unusual diligence and earnest efforts, so that despite his mature age, he has substantially improved his rather elementary playing and the terrible technique resulting from his stiff fingers. He is now in a position to play simple pieces by Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, respectively. He did not earn a degree from the conservatory, but was granted a special certificate from the director. Back stateside in 1880, Theodore took a new job at another women's college, Holland's Institute, not far from Roanoke, Virginia. Music was the largest department, and of 113 students enrolled during Presser's first year, 79 took piano lessons. Its president was Charles C. Cock, another important mentor. Cock had been the owner of 16 enslaved people when he took over the school in 1846, back when it was called Valley Union Seminary. Later, he established a school for former enslaved persons and became one of the most important advocates for women's education in the South. One thing the presser learned from Cock was an odd combination of frugality and generosity. Both lived on a very tight budget, but they were willing to make personal sacrifices to contribute liberally to causes in which they believed. 
Presser was notorious for his lack of money at the school. One of the college employees noted years later that whenever he had to have his pants mended, he had to go to bed in his room until they came back. One of his students, Ella Ballard, brought two horses to school with her. She often loaned one to Presser, who had no transportation of his own. Years later, when he was a wealthy music producer and she was a music teacher in Oklahoma, he would send her a copy of all the year's musical publications each year as a Christmas gift. He was a terrific teacher. Another of his students said, His interest in music was so intense that the students were carried away by his enthusiasm and worked a great deal harder for that reason. His great idea was the beauty of music. No ugly tones were permitted. In 1883, Theodore Presser turned 35 years old. He was idealistic and thoroughly believed in the value of teaching music. He was looking for a way to spread his love of music and idealism to as many people as possible. He had saved $250, so he quit his job teaching and published the first edition of a new magazine, The Etude, initially a modest 10-page monthly. It was to provide guidance, information, and instructions for piano teachers in their work. It combined how-to articles with practical advice on all aspects of teaching and playing, and it included music selections in each issue. It was designed specifically for piano teachers of modest accomplishment and a desire to improve. Advanced musicians and rank beginners could look elsewhere for advice. The cover price was 25 cents. An annual subscription was $1 in advance. By the end of the first year, he had 721 subscribers. Now, other than subscriptions, his only other source of income was as a church organist for $150 a year. That fall, he played organ for a series of revival meetings, which he assumed was part of his job. But at the end of the sessions, a group of ministers handed him a red velvet bag that contained $250. This gave him the incentive that he needed. He moved to Philadelphia, where he would spend the next 40 years of his life. He started with an office and residence in a third-floor back room at 1004 Walnut Street, and he saved money by sleeping under the counter at the end of the workday. If subscription money failed to meet payroll, he pawned his watch temporarily, and then he redeemed it when the dollars started arriving. He instructed his clerks to rewind the string from parcels so it could be used again. As word about the etude spread, circulation went up. By 1889, there were more than 5,000 subscribers, and the magazine expanded. Music teachers started clamoring for the music discussed in various published articles, so Presser decided that he had to go into the sheet music business to meet his readers' needs. And he trusted music teachers, often sending them things on credit. The new business was wildly successful. In 1886, the year he moved to 1704 Chestnut, he published his first copyrighted piano piece. Over the next several years, Presser purchased many music catalogs from various companies, including the celebrated four-volume Touch and Technique by pianist William Mason. 
One of his acquisitions was the Oliver Ditson Company, which could trace its origins to 1783. By 1913, the Theodore M. Presser Company had control of more than 10,000 pieces of sheet music, and Theodore Presser became a very rich man. The company's expansion required frequent moves, but almost all in the same block. In 1893, he went to 1708 Chestnut Street. By 1903, he purchased the five-story building at 1712-1714 Chestnut and converted the two upper floors to teaching studios. Two years later, the company purchased the building at 1713 Sansom Street, directly behind the Chestnut Street building, and then connected the two buildings with a tunnel and three elevated walkways over Ionic Street. And in 1921, his company purchased the five-story Grebel building at 1708-1710 Chestnut Street. When phonograph records came into vogue, you would find them at Presser's Music Shop. Eventually, the Theodore Presser Company occupied a building one block long and three stories high, containing the largest assembly of sheet music and music books in the world. And the etude continued to grow. By 1900, it exceeded 40,000 subscribers. In November 1895, the magazine had integrated with a rival publication entitled The Musical World, and the new materials and writers not only enhanced the etude, but also broadened its focus, provided it with new opinions, ideas, and subscribers. It was no longer just for piano teachers. Articles on various string and woodwind instruments were now part of the offering. There were articles on teaching methods, on the psychology of music. There was a section on opera, another on choral music. It was a gold mine of information to keep teachers up to date in music and music teaching. Eventually, the Etude became the most popular music magazine in the United States, and its success was not limited to this country. There was reported to be a stack of the Etude one foot high on the table of the anteroom of Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia. Travelers could find it from kiosks in the streets of Paris, Rome, Madrid, Berlin, Prague, Budapest, Stockholm, and other European cities. And by the late 1910s, it was being sent out to nearly a quarter of a million subscribers every month. Now, Theodore Presser had stepped down as editor of the magazine completely in 1896 to concentrate on the sheet music business and his philanthropic projects. He never returned to teaching. In 1908, he was invited to return to Mount Union College to receive an honorary degree and give a speech. He refused the degree and the opportunity to speak, feeling as a businessman who no longer taught music, he had nothing to offer the current student body. In 1890, at age 42, Theodore Presser found love. He married Helen Louisa Curran, five years his junior, daughter of wealthy Philadelphia businessman John C. Curran, at the Second Presbyterian Church at 21st and Walnut. One of the new bride's brothers surreptitiously approached Theodore to ascertain whether he would be able to maintain his sister's social position and was taken aback to find out that by publishing a music magazine and selling sheet music, Presser was making a lot more money than he was. But in March 1906, Theodore lost his wife and his mother-in-law 
within two days. He did remarry in 1908 to Elise Houston Farrell, a widow who had been a friend of his wife's. She died in 1922. The last decade of Theodore Presser's life was spent in giving back to the music teachers who had spent their dollars on sheet music to make him rich. He felt very keenly that his wealth had come from the musical public, and it was his desire to give back to the musical workers what they had given him, always offering first preference to teachers of music. But he maintained his personal fiscal tight-fistedness through the rest of his life. A companion remembered the time they had to visit a large trust company on Chestnut Street that was about ten blocks away. Rain was falling. He suggested they take a streetcar. But Theodore protested the ten-cent fare, saying, well, we need the exercise. And just before they reached their goal, they stopped at a lunch counter, and each of them had a fifteen-cent lunch. Then they walked across the street to the bank, where Presser handed over a million dollars in securities for his Presser Foundation charity work. His philanthropy had several major objectives. Presser knew the struggles of small colleges to implement and maintain music departments. Few disciplines have such specific needs as music, which requires rehearsal and performance spaces, practice rooms, and soundproof teaching studios. Retrofitting an older building is seldom satisfactory, as neither the spaces nor the soundproofing can meet the needs of a thriving music department. So beginning in 1925, the Presser Foundation dedicated money to the construction of new music buildings around the country. Ten schools, including Swarthmore College, were awarded grants before the Great Depression curtailed the program. When Philadelphia's Zion Baptist Church burned to the ground in 1972, the Presser Foundation provided $43,000 for a new church organ. The Reverend Leon Sullivan, the Lion of Zion, the pastor of the church, said, We wouldn't have an organ. As it is, we have one of the finest pipe organs in the city. And the church did not approach the foundation about an organ. The foundation came to them. Presser also understood the struggles of music students who worked as hard as others in college and usually could not look forward to a lucrative career. In 1912, he established free scholarships for people who wished to study music. The foundation has given millions of dollars in support of music students with a Presser scholarship to support the final year of college education. On a trip to Italy in the 1890s, Presser had been inspired by Giuseppe Verdi's Casa di Reposo per Musicista, the musician's rest home in Milan. In 1906, he purchased some center city property to supply something similar in this country. He knew that music teachers often were not able to save up enough money to retire in comfort, so he started the Presser Home for Old Musicians, and nobody was really interested. Well, after a time of head-scratching, he realized the name was sort of off-putting, so he changed it to the Presser Home for Retired Music Teachers, and the applications poured in. In 1914, a spacious building complex was erected next to his home in Mount Airy, and that became the new site of the Presser Home for Retired Music Teachers. For the rest of his life, Presser spent much of his free time hanging out with the teachers at the home. 
1972 article in Music Educator's Journal gave a tour of the grounds, starting with its occupant Nina Prettyman Howell, who in her wheelchair played her Amati violin for an hour or more every day. At that time, there were 38 people living in the home who ranged in age from 65 to 100 years. There were six soundproof practice rooms in the basement, each equipped with a piano. Concerts were an integral part of the life in the home, and a large station wagon took whoever wanted to go to the Academy of Music on Friday afternoons for the traditional matinee performances of the Philadelphia Orchestra. As working conditions for music teachers improved and Social Security provided some comfort in retirement, the number of inhabitants dwindled away and the presser home for old musicians eventually stood empty and nearly forgotten, the grounds weed choked for many years. The three-story house on a three-and-a-half-acre lot was 85 feet back from Johnson Street, 25 feet from Cherokee Street in Mount Airy. It was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 2006 and now, after years of neglect, has been rehabilitated. It serves as a retirement home called Presser Senior Apartments. During his lifetime, Theodore Presser was called the Horace Mann of Music, the Andrew Carnegie of Music, the John Wanamaker of Music, and the Henry Ford of Music. He was an egalitarian from head to toe. If you had lunch with him, you went to the employee cafeteria with him. No such thing as an executive dining room. He might be sitting next to a truck driver and across the table from the mayor. Everybody ate the same food in the same place. On 10 May 1925, at age 77, while attending a baseball game at the Baker Bowl, Presser was stricken with a fainting spell. He was rushed to Samaritan Hospital and found to have partial paralysis, but he soon recovered. In October of 1925, he had a spastic intestinal condition, which again caused him to be taken to Samaritan Hospital. Now he had surgery, and he seemed to be on the mend. However, on the 25th, he apparently suffered a heart attack in his sleep, and he died. His funeral was attended by throngs of people from many distant cities. It was unusual for the time in that it was not segregated. Presser had always hired people on their abilities, and he employed many people of color. The funeral music was supplied by Presser employees. He was buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in the Moreland section, Plot 327. Presser died as the radio was coming into its own, and in November 1925, WIP in Gimbel's store, Philadelphia, presented a memorial program to Theodore Presser. Many famous singers and musicians of the day gave memorials and performed. His last commercial stores closed in 2005. But Presser.com, with its online motto of In Tune With The Times since 1883, continues to serve musicians and their teachers just as it did nearly 140 years ago, now from its office in Malvern. The PresserFoundation.org continues to provide thousands of dollars yearly to advance music education and the Presser Home for Retired Music Teachers, now as the Presser Senior Apartments, continues to supply lodging for people 62 and up in Mount Airy. Theodore Presser's legacy is huge.
remember that the regular edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, will be available on the fourth Friday of January. February is Black History Month. This February, I'm going to talk about several black pioneers interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Raymond Pace Alexander, a lawyer and a civil rights activist. His wife, Sadie Tanner Mossel Alexander, she was the first in many areas and also lived a life of service. Denny Hoggard Jr., a preacher's son who went to Penn State after his time in the Army in World War II, and then he helped integrate the Cotton Bowl in 1948. Marion Stokes, who dedicated the last 35 years of her life to videotaping newscasts from cable television stations until she had more than 800,000 hours of material. And Joseph Beam, an LGBTQ activist who edited and published the first anthology written by black gay men. Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill edition number 5 in mid-February will be on Ira D'Augustine Reed, an academic sociologist for more than 40 years who published more than 100 articles and book chapters but who got swept up in the Red Scare in the early 1950s. He headed the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at Haverford College for nearly 20 years. Remember to become a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. You will get discounts on tours and in the gift shop, at least two members-only bonus podcasts this year, and special tours that include visits inside some mausoleums at West Laurel Hill. Visit us at the cemeteries. You can find most of the activities at the laurelhillcemetery.org slash events. There is a general history tour at West Laurel Hill coming up on Saturday, January 22nd at 1 p.m. But as I write this, the February schedule has not been announced. This is Joe Lex. I'm a retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, volunteer podcaster. I'd love to hear from you. My email, joe at joelex.net. And maybe I'll see you on a tour. Stay safe. Stay well.